America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed. If the system want to take you out of society, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they're breaking the law. Having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. I'm not anti-police, I'm just anti-corruption. A lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody and that's the first thing we say, that could never happen to me, but it can. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I am actually in the presence of someone who I am, uh, I can only say I'm in awe of this guy. John Huffington is here. John was in prison for 32 years, 10 of them on death row, for a double murder that he didn't commit. And the things that he's doing today would embarrass the biggest do-gooder among us. So, John, uh, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, John, let's go back to the beginning before this insane saga began. Because this happened when you were 18. But before that, how was your life? What was it like? Where'd you grow up? So, I grew up in a small town called Churchville's. It's in Hartford County, in between two bigger towns that folk would know, Bel Air and Aberdeen. and Maryland. Yeah. In Maryland, yes, Maryland. So I grew up probably what we considered middle-class, upper-class kind of a situation. Nice neighborhood, good schools. I had everything that you know you would want in that sense of support, a strong family. My parents ended up being married over 56 years, I think it was, you know, at the end. Siblings were doing well. So, you know, it's like anything else, young age, you know, we make our choices, we get exposed to different things, and I made a few of the wrong choices and took quicker routes to negativity is what it turned out to be and exposed myself to lifestyles that were not healthy. My choices took me out of an arena where, you know, I should have had the, the white picket fence, you know, the two and a half kids or whatever, and, you know, and a dog. Were you doing anything violent at the time? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, it, when I say bad choices, um, it was in to getting into drugs, and you know, that's what I was doing. I was, I was dealing drugs, and I was living that lifestyle. As you were between 10th grade and, I guess, 12th grade when this happened, right, did you ever have any interaction with law enforcement based on the fact that you were involved with drugs? No, I never had any uh, regular charge placed on me in that regard. I was a wild child, and my parents were trying to bring me more under control, so there, there was that. I was exposed to the, the juvenile criminal system, justice system at that time, with a, uh, what they call sin child, ch child in need of supervision, because my parents were kind of at wit's end of what to do. So I got juvenile probation and had to do like family counseling and that kind of thing to work through that. But again, it was me being, you know, rebellious against, you know, my parents were, there was a serious um, generation gap. My parents were born in the 20s and they were in their 40s before the kids came along. So as I was pushing the boundaries of curfews and just lifestyle choices, it was very hard to sort of transgress into that through the family unit. And, you know, having a younger brother and sister, my parents didn't want that to be a bad influence on them as well. So, you know, they were right to try and bring me, bring me in tighter. So, None of the stuff that you're describing would prepare you or anyone for death row or any of the stuff that was to befall you. And it all leads to that fateful day of May 25th, 1981, when there was a double murder and you were implicated ultimately by the guy who actually committed the crimes. So how did, how did they come to decide to come get you in the first place? So the night 
of or prior in that evening, I was with what turned out to be my co-defendant. And we were at a club, and they were closing that club early. It was a Sunday night. And the owner was like, well, we're all going to go over here. Why don't we go? And so we end up over at the club where one of the victims worked as a DJ. And the guy had worked for me in the past. Like, when I say worked for me, he had purchased quantities of cocaine, you know, and sold for me. So we had various conversations. Um, and the, my co-defendant was actually looking to make a purchase that night. I was waiting for supply to come in anyway. So that's kind of the, the realm of why we were all in that you know, gathering, so to speak. So we left there after having some conversation. At the end of the night, at 2 in the morning, whatever, we had gone back to, he lived in a trailer home. We had gone back and had further conversation. My co-defendant actually purchased like an eighth of an ounce of Coke or whatever from him. And we left it at that, and we left. So when the murders were discovered the next day and the police investigation led them to my co-defendant because his name had been said while they were in the car because I guess we were following them, and somebody's like, who's the car following us? And it was said, you know, that's Dino. So they they tracked him down, and he had reached out to me asking for an alibi. And again, look, at that age, I was 18, I'm... I'm a drug dealer, I'm anti-police, I'm like all about the loyalty factor and you know, never snitching and all those kind of things, just being young and stupid. So it wasn't a big thing to me. It was like, whatever, no problem. This is the following night, I guess. I got a call from his cousin that said the police had reached out to him looking for me because apparently they didn't know my last name. They just wanted to talk to me. So I was like, fine, let's go, let's go see him. <laughs> so literally, we went to the police station, and I walked in, I knocked on the door, and I said, you know, I'm John Huffington. I understand you're looking for me. And they were like, yeah, we are. So, But you of, didn't know at that time what they were looking for you for. No, I, honestly, I didn't know the extent of what had happened. I just knew something had happened. Well, because your friend at the time, co-defendant, it turned out to be Dino Canaris, he hadn't told you about what he had done. He well, just was, told you that he wanted an alibi. Like we need to, we need to have been here all night because we'd gone to a convention, a music convention that they have as a bluegrass convention the next day, and it was like we need to fill the gap from the night before. You know, I'm not stupid, but I don't. I, I just didn't know the extent of it. I mean, who would ever expect that he had committed a double murder? Right. I mean, did you know this guy to be a violent guy? No, but as the case developed, a quick sidebar on that, there was a witness that came forward who I didn't even know. You know, I'd met once in my life, but this guy said that he was with Dino like two weeks prior to this and that they were at the location, the campground, and that Dino pulled out a gun and a knife and wanted to go kill and rob these people. Again, I don't, I don't find this out till years later in his trial. Like that witness never testified at one of my trials ever. It wasn't my witness. It was and, a state witness. And again, you had never personally known him to be prone to this type of, uh, talking about violence, I mean, extreme violence. Extreme, yeah. No, I hadn't. I mean, I always looked at him, quite honestly, he wasn't a friend of mine. His other cousins were friends of mine. Like, I didn't like Dino. He was addicted to the cocaine. This is a guy that chased it. So you covered for him because you just were more, I mean, even though he wasn't really a friend, you were more anti-authority at the time, and you were just kind of being a bro. And I was impressionable, like, too. Like, the Greeks... Well, he was much older than you, right? Yeah. He was in his mid-20s, something. I think 27. I was 18. Right. The Greeks have their thing. Like I said, I was friends with their cousin, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm rolling with the gangsters, and this is what we all do, and it's that kind of a lifestyle. But again... It's something I still ascribe to today. Like, I don't, you know, have my code of what we could call honor or ethics where I don't snitch, you know. And so when I get in there and, I, you know, they're confronting me with this, I don't have a way out. Now it's different to think abstractly, like, okay, something happened, even a crime of violence, something happened, you know, it's abstract. But when you, you know, started hearing the elements of it, it was very, I'm 18, it was a little overwhelming. I didn't even know how to process it. So my reaction to them was, Look, I'm not involved in this. You can come search my apartment right now. I'll take a lie detector test. I'll do whatever I can to extricate myself the only way I know how. So they were like, we'll do all of that. So literally left the police station. Now it's probably midnight on Sunday. And they drove me back to my apartment. And I turned in like all my paraphernalia right then and there. 
Because I told them, I said, if you search my apartment, there might be some things you're going to find. And they're like, like what? And I'm like, you know, I have scales. I have drug paraphernalia, that kind of thing. And they're like, are you willing to turn it in? I'm like, absolutely. I just retired. <laughs> as of today, as of this moment, I'm, I'm retired. I'm not a drug dealer anymore. Like, I knew my life had just completely changed right then and there. So we went back to the apartment, and I turned in all this material. And I had volunteered to take the lie detector test. So the only thing I had said is I just wanted a lawyer there. And I don't, I don't have a lawyer. I don't know a lawyer. So the next morning, I literally went to the Yellow Pages. And back in those days, they had Yellow Pages. And there was a guy in my class at school who I knew his father was an attorney. So I looked for that last name, called that law firm. And it turns out his father does civil, but his uncle does criminal law. So I set up an appointment and went in there the very next morning at like 9 o'clock and met with the attorney. And, you know, they're like, well, what is it you want us to do? And I'm like, I want to take the lie detector test. I want this to be... You know, I don't want them looking at me like I'm involved. I want to do this. And they're like, okay, we'll set it up. So I was leaving the police station, went to get in our car. I was with my future brother-in-law. He was my sister's boyfriend at the time. And Dino's father was standing outside because the restaurant's right there. So I said good morning to him and continued on to get in the car. Well, unbeknownst to me, that night, Dino had gone to his father and gave his, whatever you want to call his confession, but obviously it was all putting the weight on me, saying that I held him hostage while all this stuff happened. So all that had transpired, unbeknownst to me, during the evening. So when his father saw me, his father ran into the police station and said, you know, John Huffington's out in the parking lot. So we're starting to pull out of our parking spot. I look up, I see the back of the police station door just burst open, and a dozen officers are, are fanning out into the parking lot. We're the only vehicle moving, so we're immediately surrounded, guns drawn. So I told my brother-in-law, like, just, just stop, just pull over. And we get out of the car, and it's like, that was it. That was the last time, that right there, that moment was the last time my feet hit the ground until 32 years later. 32 years later. And I never did get that lie detector test. Never got the lie detector test. It sounds like some other people should have been given lie detector and tests. And they were. And they were, and he failed. To our knowledge and what my law firm was able to ascertain, we're aware that he took two, and he failed both of them. You're talking about Dino. Dino. Mm -hmm. So now you know you're in real trouble. Mm -hmm. um, you've got this lawyer now. Did he end up representing you, and how did and how did things go from there? How long were you held in jail? I'm assuming you were held without bail because yeah. this was a. I mean, you're talking about Joe Hudson was shot and killed outside a farm on his way to a what turned out to be a fabricated drug deal. Right? He was the boyfriend of Diana Becker who was beaten and stabbed. Uh, she had been sleeping in her trailer. Her son found her. I mean, it's, the whole thing's horrible in every, in every way. And then it gets worse when an innocent man ends up serving all this time in prison when they actually had the real perpetrator. But he had every reason to implicate you. I mean, he didn't care about you at all. No. And he was making a deal for himself, probably to spare his own life, because, of course... Maryland had the death penalty. Still does, I think, right? No, they've abolished it. Oh, so Maryland's abolished the death penalty, but they had the death they penalty had, back then. Yeah. So, yeah, you were, he had the strongest possible incentive to Absolutely. implicate somebody, and you were the logical guy because you were the guy who had been around that night, right? So it was like he didn't need to be a, a brain surgeon to figure that out. But then it's interesting, too, because he came up with this story, which every time I think we've ever heard it, it's been false, right, which is that you held him hostage, and it changes, you know, it, his story changes every time he testifies. You know, grand jury, I've had two trials. He'll admit that it's his gun. There's really no ducking that because when he was with these undercover cops, there was a point in time where they were driving somewhere, and he was in the car with the officer, and he said, wait a minute, let me go get my gun. I don't ever go anywhere without my gun. So he went back to his car, he came back with the gun. Now, the officer obviously is not pleased with this, nervous that he's carrying a gun, so asked to see it. Like, let me, what do you carry? Let me see it. Apparently, it's a, it was a unique kind of a thirty-eight. There was an animal on the handle or something. The officer noted that. So just, just he can't duck the fact that this officer is testifying. This is an undercover state police officer that Canaris carries a gun. So he tells different versions of he supposedly sells me this gun, like either two weeks before or a month before you know, that kind of stuff changes every time he opens his mouth. And, of course, you didn't have the gun. I don't have a gun. And they knew you didn't have a gun because they'd searched your apartment and right. they'd searched it's, everything. There was no physical evidence connecting you to the crime. 
The only thing that they, as far as physical evidence goes, is there was a vodka bottle that apparently was used as a weapon to, to bludgeon Diana. And my fingerprint, they've claimed, is on the neck of this bottle. Now, this is back in the 80s where everybody, myself included, we always had these big bottles in your apartment or whatever, and it's where you throw your coins. And usually you had these big feathers sticking out of it. I did on mine. And that's what this bottle was in the trailer. Apparently, it was full of coins and such. So, you know, they asked me, well, how could your fingerprint get on there? My answer is, I don't know. Like, I was in the trailer. Did I touch it at one point? I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and tell you a lie and say very specifically, that night I moved the bottle, so therefore my fingerprint's on there. I don't know. If you say my fingerprint's on there, there was also, I don't know, there was over 20 other fingerprints and handprints on this bottle that still to this day remain unidentified. But that was the other piece of evidence that they've used to put me at the scene. You know, I don't have an answer for that. I'm not going to sit here and make up an answer. I've been in the trailer. I was there that night. Did I touch it? If it's my fingerprints on there, obviously I did at some point. Did I swing it as a weapon? No, that's just not the facts. So. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. So, you go to trial. Mm-hmm. Did you still have the same lawyer? No, I. You know, at this point, I mean, I. You know, I'm 18, and I wasn't that that good of a drug dealer. I couldn't afford lawyers, so it became a public defender. By the time I made it to trial, I was represented by a, a public defender who, who actually did a fairly good job. I mean, he. I thought you know he did a great job, and um, apparently the jury didn't. Your parents didn't want to pay for a lawyer. No. You know, I was living on my own. I, I didn't really talk to them about that. I mean, it was kind of understood, like, you know, I'm grown, I'm an adult, and, you know, this is my journey, and, you know, I wasn't going to pull the family down into it. My mom especially was very supportive, sat there every day of trial and stuff. But, no, my entire incarceration, I never financially pulled anybody into it. I know, that's, that's the way you are. In any case, so you had this public defender who did as good of a job as he could have done under the circumstances, which kudos to him. Yeah. But... At what point did you realize that you were doomed? Hmm. <laughs> well, here's a funny story. <laughs> so, 
a funny story. There ain't nothing funny about that. No, there's not. But this is this is when I knew I was in serious, serious trouble. So it's a change of venue because it's a death penalty case. So it's automatic change of venue. So I'm not in Harford County where the crime occurred, which is, you know, rural but metropolitan. I'm in Caroline County, which is extremely rural. So in the middle of the trial, the jury's been sworn this older woman approached the jury box and passed a note to this elderly gentleman that was on the jury. And of course, everybody's watching it like, what the heck, you know, what the hell's going on here? You don't do this. And the judge stopped everything and was like, you know, I don't remember the names, but he's like, Myrtle, come up here for a minute. And she comes up there and it's like, what are you doing? What did you just pass the bill? Everybody knows everybody in this county, you know, like she's like, oh. And he had the note, he had the bailiff grab the note. It had one word on it, soybeans. So it's like, what is this all about? She's like, well, the seeds just came in, and I need Bill at home to plant the crop. Now I knew I'm in trouble because here I am. This is a very cosmopolitan case, and you know, you know, it's drugs and it's the city and, and this kind of thing. And I'm in a courtroom where they're talking about soybeans. That's their priority, and they're not going to get any of this information whatsoever. It just was one of those, you know, I'm in Mayberry and I'm in trouble. They're going to listen to anything officials tell them be it state's attorneys, FBI agents on the stand. This is the kind of folk that are just going to believe in authority without questioning it or challenging it. So, And they got to get home to deal with the soybeans. And they got to get home. So they're going to rush out of here as quickly as they can. And it was Friday the 13th that the verdict came in. So, of course, mm. that was an interesting day. But it was just, interesting you, know, you ask <laughs> when I knew, it was like, quite honestly, there was a lot of, naiveness on my part, thinking, you know, I had never really been exposed to this system. And I'm like, truth, this is what this is about. It's going to come out. They're going to figure this out. And it just didn't come like that. It just, I had FBI agent after FBI agent come in there in their suits and ties. And we're with the FBI lab and they're saying what they're saying. Well, all three of those FBI agents have now been discounted. Like their testimony, their, their tests have been thrown out. But at the time, that's an impressive thing to Mayberry or anywhere else. And, you know, I was just up against it. And the more you sit there day after day listening to the testimony, the more worried you get. This is not going to go well. No, you were you were doomed at this backwoods place and people that are in a hurry to get home. I mean, it's a perfect storm. Oh, yeah. You're done. Yeah. And we know now, and the FBI has acknowledged this, right, because a four-year study was conducted by the Innocence Project and the FBI. And the results showed that in a study, I think it was 268 cases, they found that I think in 257 of them, I'm trying to remember these numbers out of my head, I think that's right, FBI agents had either lied or been mistaken. And these were all cases involving hair analysis, like yours. In fact, yours was one of them. Yep. And the fact is that when I say they either lied or were mistaken, what I want people to understand is that in every one of those cases in which they were mistaken, they were mistaken in favor of the prosecution. Absolutely. So it's hard to take a view and say, well, these were honest mistakes, because none of them came down in the other direction. And of the 28 FBI agents involved, 26 of them were complicit in this. So you were a victim like so many other people based on this hair analysis in which they either lied or exaggerated or or misstated the likelihood that the hairs could have come from somebody else. And we know that they were just making these fingers up out of thin air and saying things with certainty that were, in some cases, even money or even less, right? That the odds could have, it could have come from almost anyone. And of course, it's extremely powerful, as you said, when an FBI agent gets up there, I mean, who's going who's gonna to think twice? Maybe people who listen to the show will think twice. Yeah. Um, I hope so. So the, the day comes, Friday the 13th, You've got very little hope in hell at this point. What were you expecting when the jury went out? How long did they deliberate? Day and a half. Wow. That's actually yeah. longer than I would have thought. Yeah. And then they come back in. Did they look at you? No. They always. I've heard that adage before. Like, if they're not looking at you, you're in trouble. So they didn't. And so I knew, you know, you just get that, you know, like, I, I don't know if that's true, but I'd been t- somebody had told me that prior. So I was looking to see if they were going to look me in the eye, and they didn't. Um, so you stand for the verdict. The first count, it was, a, it was the strangest thing. I still don't understand how they did it, but the first count was first-degree premeditated malice, forethought murder, you know, murder in the first degree, and they said not guilty. Wow. So I was like, like, okay. 
And you, you thought you were going home. I thought that's okay. This is good. You know, we 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 made it. We proved our point. Then they said, okay, as to the first count, still the same first count of the indictment to felony murder. How do you find? And that's when they said guilty. And I'm like, wait, I just got a guilty and a not guilty on the same count, just two different degrees of murder. It always bothered me, and I've I've actually challenged that over and over again as a double jeopardy violation, but. It never, it just never caught wind. Uh, you know, we just couldn't prevail on that. But that's my feelings as I was standing there. Is like, wow, you know, you go from all the way to the top of the roller coaster all the way at the bottom that quickly, um, and from that you don't really hear anything more. Like I didn't, I, I was just in a daze. Like, what just happened here? And, and you're trying to process it. And I'm like, I'm 18 years old. Like, as smart as I might have thought I was at that age, you know, now I have. 30-some years of hindsight to look back on that 18-year-old kid that was standing there, and I'm not smart. And I didn't know how to process it. It was way above my capacity to really understand and fathom what had happened and what was about to happen the whole nine. I mean, looking back, it's like I don't even know how I was able to stand there and just absorb it. Yeah, I mean, it's a miracle you were able to stay on your feet, actually. Um, I was rocking. There there wasn't any breeze in that courtroom, but I certainly started, you know, like just rocking on my heels a little bit. Like I was taken aback. And your your mom was there. Do you remember who else was there? You know, I remember, yeah, my parents were there. You know, I'm under custody, so I can't even go over and give my mother a hug. I can't be reassuring. I can't do anything because I don't even know. I I don't know what's about to befall me. I don't. I don't know what death row is going to be like in the penitentiary because it's a bifurcated process. So the conviction has happened, but now I've got to come back in about a month and be sentenced. So there's a whole other process about to occur as well. And again, I had not been exposed to this. This is long before Forensic Files and CSI and all these kind of shows. Like, I don't know. I just didn't know. And I, I, I don't think I ever processed it. I think I just absorbed it and just, it's like treading water, just kept my head above water and it just kept coming, you know, so. So amazing that you said what you just said, and you were so young, and then your situation couldn't have been more dire. You were about to be sentenced to death. And yet your thought was trying to comfort your mom, not the other way around. It's amazing to me. Like, that, that you know, what that says about your character is, uh, is pretty profound, and I just want to take a moment to recognize that. So now the worst possible thing that could happen has happened, and off you go to prison. Can you take us through that? I mean, death row, I think it's everybody's most primal fear. Well, interesting enough, in Maryland, the time that I went on death row, it was not segregated. We were in population. When I first went in there, what they would do is they they put you on admin seg. In other words, they lock you in a cell for a month just to see if your head's right, I guess. And then they let you out into regular pop. You know, you're in gen pop. There's nothing to distinguish you as being death row. They had a, a board somewhere where they had kept our pictures on it. And like, these are the guys on death row. But we lived anywhere we wanted inside the prison. We could live in any housing block we wanted. We weren't all in the same tier or whatever at the beginning. Now, years into it, I don't know, four or five years in, they decided to put us all in the same tier. So like, we were cell one through 12 on the second tier street side of A block. So we were housed together at a later point. But in the beginning, we weren't. The thing about prison is like everybody knows everything. The grapevine is extremely good. So people know you're on death row or whatever, but it doesn't carry any cachet value when the guy next to you is serving five life sentences. So he doesn't give a shit that you got two death penalties. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't give you any credentials whatsoever. It really comes down to who you are. Did you say two death penalties? Yeah, my original sentence was death plus death plus 15 plus 5 plus 3. For his total, two death penalties in like 21 years, all consecutive, by the way. So right, I don't so, know how you do that time. but Well, so if they execute you and you come back to life, they can execute you again. And then hold my body for 21 years, I guess. Or if you come back to life a second time, right, then they get to hold you in prison for another 21 years. It's, 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 it's really... Uh, it just shows you how stupid the concept is. Yeah, double yeah. the double death sentence is like, what the fuck? Anyway, yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I can't even process this. As far as death row is concerned, I mean, there's, there's no good news whatsoever. No, there's nothing. There, there is absolutely zero for that. And you learn the minute you step onto the tier, like, nobody gives a shit if you're innocent or you're not. So, like, there's no point in going in there saying, you know, but wait, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. So 
I guess I can liken it. It's like if you stepped out on a pond, a frozen pond, and you suddenly, the ice cracked and you fell through and you drift. So you're not under that air hole anymore. But you can see through the ice and, you know, it's 12 inches of ice there. You see the people and you can scream all you want. It's just air bubbles, you know, like you just can't be heard. You're trapped. And that's just how it felt. It's a self-imposed cage that I put myself on because you want to scream to the world like, I'm innocent, I don't belong here. But then you, you know, everybody doesn't belong in prison and everybody's innocent. You fall into that. So I don't know. I just, you bite your tongue. You, you learn to adjust to the situation the best you can. And I just hit the law library. You know, I spent the first year just reading everything I could get my hands on and studying law. And I was writing my own motions and driving my lawyers crazy, you know, but I was fighting for my life. And that's the only way I knew how to do it. So I tried to to be a little bit more proactive or constructive in that way instead of just sitting back with a woe is me attitude. And obviously I couldn't count on anybody else to save my life. I had to fight for my life and that's what I did. You brought up an interesting point, which is that as a death row inmate, you are entitled to post-conviction counsel, right? Mm-hmm. An appellate counsel. So that's about the only positive thing, I guess, about being sentenced to death. Whereas if you were a normal inmate or sentenced to life, you would not be entitled to that right. and you'd be totally on your own. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. So there you were in the law library. Was What was the day-to-day experience, the physical experience, but also what was the mental and spiritual thing that, that led you to be able to not only maintain your physical health, so I mean, as best you could, but also eventually find a way to get out and be sitting right here right now. I mean, how, what, what can you tell us? Well, so in the beginning, I was just angry, you know, I was young and still, not that I've figured myself out by any means, but I hadn't like really took that time and the introspection and tried to figure out who I thought I was. So maybe the first I want to say six or seven years, I probably was close to becoming everything they wanted me to be, which is the convict. I was getting in trouble inside. I had my share of fights. I had a violation of the prison rules for whatever things I was doing. I had an attempt to escape. You know, I just, I was not conforming, wasn't going to conform. I had a real problem with authority, with the officers. I literally got an assault charge against one officer one time who said I assaulted them, but I was defending myself against five officers, and, you know, I'm the one that gets the assault charge, which was dropped later. But So that's who I was becoming. And then I guess I had a little epiphany. You know, I woke up, and there was a guy I was working with. I was in the property room. You know, I went did my job every day, and I worked in the package room and where the, the property was packed up. And this guy was always involved in activities like he was a member jc's was you know had a chapter inside this is the junior chamber of commerce and he was always doing paperwork and doing stuff and i was like what are you doing and he's like you need to come join you need to be a part of this so i ended up joining the jc's and the minute i joined they asked me to be on their board as ways and means director their fundraiser and then two years later no one year later i was the president and you know now the JCs are, it's a leadership training through community service. They were doing a lot of good things. And I felt a responsibility that I got 120 guys, maybe not all of them voted for me, but they elected me. And so I'm there to lead them. And then, 
you know, I started looking around, and it's like, here are these, you know, they're kids. Some of them are 16, 17, younger than me. They come into the system, and they're the throwaway class, and nobody cared. Nobody was working with them. The warden had two rules. Don't jump on my wall, and don't jump on my officers. Other than that, anything went. I mean, guy gets killed, like, stabbed to death on the yard, literally... Two hours later, they threw sand over the blood, and we're back to normal like nothing ever happened. That's, that was the penitentiary back then. So I felt, I felt a calling to do something different. And so through JCs, you know, we were able to start doing some things that brought a, a certain degree of, I don't know, self-respect and measurability to not just the inmates but to the population inside as well as out. So we did a lot of projects out on the street. And we had a local chapter of the NAACP that was in there as well. And this is like when school uniforms were first coming back as a topic. There was a young girl that got murdered, straight bullet hit her, and she was like eight years old, attended Utah Marshburn Elementary School. And they were having trouble raising the money for their school uniforms, so we did it. Inside of prison, we raised that money for the school uniforms, the NAACP and the JCs. And then there was, you know, I saw a little article in the, it was the open forum section of the Aegis. It was a letter that a woman had written about her grandchild needed a bone marrow transplant. Insurance wasn't going to pay for it. She was asking for help. So I reached out and contacted her and said, look, you know, we don't have a lot of money, but we have a silk screen shop. So you know, we can design some T-shirts, and I'll give them to you. You can sell them at your fundraisers. You know? So we ended up giving her like 500 T-shirts and like 1,000 of these little buttons, and they were using those to raise money. And the girl got her surgery and was successful. And you know, every Christmas, the grandmother would send me pictures and a card, you know, telling, give me an update as she... You know, went through life and graduated high school and stuff. So there was a lot of good, and I don't say that because it was me. I say that because it was 120 guys following what we were doing. They were doing good things and giving back to the community outside as well as inside. And that's where I found, I guess, my calling in a sense, or where it reawoken my own social conscience and my a passion to do something right and do it well. You know, to be honest, it was just being ornery. Like, I was still fighting my case, and my thought process was, I'm not going to be carried kicking and screaming into a gas chamber. And I'm not going to walk in there head bowed. If that's the ultimate thing that's going to happen, when I walk in there, they're going to still question for decades later what they did and why they did it and if they got the right guy because I'm not going to fit the stereotype of what they think. So it's just important. And at the end, it really is, you know, they talk about the dash. It really comes down to the dash. This man was born, this man died. It's, It's about what happens in between, the dash that's in between those two dates. If you don't make it count for something, then why were you here? So I figured if I'm, if I'm in there, that's where my dash is going to be, then it's still going to count. And so it was really, really important to me to make my life mean something, regardless of where I was. So you know, I was doing the JCs. We brought Alternatives to Violence Project from New York down to Baltimore. You know, this was started in Greenhaven State Prison up here by the Quakers. It's now an international organization, conflict mediation. We started that in Maryland. And I got my college degree while I was inside. I was, I was in the last graduating class as Congress took away our access to the Pell Grant. They literally took away my senior year. I graduated as a junior. I just was lucky I was going for a dual degree and I had enough credits to go on out. But I lost my senior year over that poor decision. But So I, I, I chose to make the time work for me. Not saying it was easy time. I did my time in all the hardest prisons in Maryland. You know, I was in the penitentiary for my first 16. I was in Cumberland. I was in the cut. I was in Supermax. I didn't get any easy ride. There was no country club prison for me at any point in time. But we were able to make a difference and change not just our mentalities, but I think somehow society looked at us. And hopefully those seeds that we planted back then grow trees now because more people are looking at reentry and, and trying to get recidivism down and understanding the need to launch programs in the system and work with folk, not to warehouse people, but to actually say, regardless of why you're there, human beings are redeemable and the human spirit is going to thrive in spite of. So why don't we encourage that? Why don't we water that with positivity rather than encourage the negativity? Because you encourage the negativity, you just create an unsafe environment for your own guard force. And 75% of these people are coming home. You're just breeding repeat, so. Well, yeah, I mean, nationally, 95% of everyone that's in prison is going to 
be released at some point. So just purely on a societal level, it behooves all of us to want to have those people have a shot when they get out at, yeah. at getting on the right track. So you survived this death row ordeal. All the odds were stacked against you. Finally, decades into this nightmare of yours, you discover that the evidence exists that can actually free you, right? And the response of the authorities is actually fucking mind-blowing, right? Talk about the hair and when that emerged and how it emerged and what the response of the people in power was. I'll try to do this really quickly because it goes all the way back to the Oklahoma City bombing case. So after the Oklahoma City bombing case, there was a whistleblower that came out of the FBI lab, Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, and he brought forth several allegations about the pressure to falsify evidence and the very fact that the lab was not equipped to deliver a good report. It was dirty. The best practices weren't being utilized. He laid it out. And what ended up happening, it it launched a, I think, about a year-long investigation from the inspector general's office, at which time, at the conclusion of that, they issued this massive report, 300-page report, and they found that what Dr. Whitehurst had alleged was true in a lot of cases. So in particular, as it affects me, they named the FBI agent that had testified in my case, Agent Michael Malone. And their commentary about him was that he consistently testified outside of his area of expertise and misrepresented evidence. Now, I'm just a layman. It sounds like you just called the man a liar with very fancy words. But they didn't go quite that far to, to call him that. So here's this report, and I'm thinking, great, we can do something. Well, we can't. I'm on collateral attack at this time, meaning post-conviction. And apparently that report doesn't mean anything. So I was never able to persevere or file any kind of motions based on that. So now, well, let me jump to the next part. So in 2003, I get introduced to the Innocence Project. A friend of mine was working through the Innocence Project, and Nina Nina Morrison was handling his case, and he had hair evidence in his case, and they DNA tested it, it came back, it wasn't his. He was about to go home, and he was like, you need to, to contact these people, because he knew my case, and he knew me. He'd been around me for decades. You know, we know, trust me, as fellow convicts, we know who did a crime and who didn't, and he knew that I didn't do it. So with his encouragement, I'd reached out and got the Innocence Project involved, my law firm, and we had filed to do DNA testing on the hair. This is 2003. Well, the very first thing the state did in writing was filed a motion asking the court's permission to destroy the evidence. Now, we, we didn't know why. I mean, this is, that was an odd thing to write. You know, like we want to just, you know, you've held it for whatever, 26, 27 years at that time, and now you want to destroy it. When we're about to send it to a lab that we mutually agree you know, is the top, it's mitotyping lab in Pennsylvania, Dr. Terry Melton, who's the foremost DNA scientist in the, in the country. And we all agree this is going to be a fair review, and you're saying you want to destroy the evidence. So the judge ruled against that, and after an eight-hour-long courtroom battle, we got approval to send the hair to the lab. Well, well, well let me stop for a second here, right? So can you, I'm just picturing the judge. The judge sitting there, and the prosecutors are arguing, saying, you know what? Before we discover the truth, we'd just like to take a preliminary step of destroying any chance of discovering the truth by exactly. eliminating the one thing that can actually tell us what happened. You know, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's public record. It's, it's, you couldn't write a script like this. It's, it's mind-boggling. It becomes more mind-boggling when 14 years later, we understand why he did that. So... What happens is we send these slides to the lab. We get a call from the lab that basically says, what do you want us to do with this? And we're like, test the two hairs. And again, I have to pay for this. I've been incarcerated 20-odd years at this point. Coming up with $15,000 is not an easy task. And I still wasn't clear on how I was going to do that, but we were moving forward. So Dr. Melton hits my lawyers and says, you know, what do you want me to do? And it's like, test the hairs. Well, the problem was there was about 10 microscopic slides. Each slide had five to eight hairs on them. They were preserved in some kind of chemical mounting. They were not identified. They were not even laid out like one strand pulled tight, like they were on top of each other. So you had to test all of them? Well, to test all of them, it would have cost probably, I think it was 85000 Jesus. And at the end of the day, like, what does that tell me? Like, I've had two trials. Where do these hairs even came from? All along, you've always said, we have two hairs, like, they were the only two hairs found in this entire trailer, and they belonged to Huffington. 
And literally one of the hairs was found on the body. And so he put you right at the scene. So I didn't even know there were that many hairs. We never knew that. So we went back with the help of the Innocence Project and we had an agent look at the file to see if there was any notes in there that might help us. We filed a Freedom of Information Act to get the file, which took another year. And at the end of that, the FBI told us, well, whoever does their Freedom of Information Act told us, well, your file exists. Here's the number. Here's the town. Here's the building. Here's the file cabinet it's supposed to be in, but it's not there. So your request is denied. You can appeal this if you want. Just like that, my file wasn't around. So like, oh, okay. So there wasn't anything more we could do. We sent the stuff back to the state. We withdrew the motion from the court. And actually, my lawyers withdrew from the case because we were done. There was nothing more that we could do. That was like the last, basically a Hail Mary that we were trying to prove the point. So years go by. This is 2003, four in that range. In 2009... Governor O'Malley puts a new law in the book called a writ of actual innocence, and that's based on preponderance of evidence or the totality of the evidence, meaning before you would only look at this cup of water by itself. But if you look at this cup of water with that pitcher of water sitting on this table with two of us talking, now there's a story if we put it in its proper perspective. So here's this chance to really go back in and say, let's look at all these little pieces together. They tell a story. So my lawyers spent, oh, my God, probably a year preparing that motion. They looked at every state that had similar laws and really studied it. We filed a 75-page motion, and we had a hearing. At the hearing, again, the bravado of this state's attorney, the first thing he tells the judge is, well, Your Honor, Mr. Huffington had a chance to test the hairs. He didn't even test them, so why are we still here today? So the judge, who doesn't know why we didn't test them, now turns and says, well, why didn't you test them? So my lawyers explained to him what happened. And he turned to the state, he said, well, why does Mr. Huffington have to test them anyway? You test them, which the law says I have to. But he told the state, you go test them. I'm going to hold this hearing. You go test them. So we left that hearing. The state went to the state police and asked them to test the hairs. And the state police said, no, we don't test another lab's work, and we don't have a budget for that, so we're not touching it. So all summer long, the judge thinks that we're testing hairs. What the state was doing is they went back and they tested my boots and they tested my pants and they tested the jacket. They tested everything they could possibly test. And then September comes, they're done. They haven't tried to do the hairs with the FBI. So they tell my lawyers, we're done. Let's go back into court. We don't have anything more to test. But they're telling the judge with regular updates, like, we're working on it, we're working on it. And they tested all your stuff just to see if there was any evidence of the victim on your clothes? Whatever they could figure out. You know, yeah, they were trying to tie me to the scene through now. DNA didn't exist back then. So they, they were trying to pull me in with forensic evidence, and none of that worked. So right after they made that announcement, out of the blue, my lawyers got a phone call from a reporter at the Washington Post, Spencer Shue. He's working on this big expose of the FBI lab and their hair analysis section. So he wanted to talk to us because I was the Maryland case that Michael Malone was involved in. So my lawyers are like, well, you know, we're in court. We can't talk about the case. And so the conversation continued. And long story short on that, he had my file, the file that we couldn't get. He had it. He got it through Freedom of Information Act. Again, years later, but he has it. So there's two things in that file that we never knew about. The first is after the inspector general's report was done on the FBI lab, the FBI lab That was a public report. What nobody knew is the FBI lab conducted their own internal investigation after that. They went out and hired forensic scientists to come in and review their own agent's work, including Agent Malone in my case. So there's a report in my file from this outside expert. And his report basically just says, no way. There's no way that Malone could have testified the way he did in my trial. And he even raised the doubt that Malone actually even did the test himself. So there's this report. And then the other document that's in there is a letter, again, from 1999, from the FBI to the state's attorney saying there's a problem in the Huffington case with the hair. You might want to notify either Mr. Huffington or his attorneys. 1999. Now, remember what happens in 2003 when I go to test the hair? What's the first thing the state does? Try to destroy it. Yeah. Now it makes sense. Because they knew. They knew four years earlier. And they, now here we are 14 years later just finding this out. So the FBI went to the state. They sent the letter to the state. Now the state in sat there in open court, in open court. And this I'll never forget or forgive. He sat in open court and tried to tell the judge that he hadn't notified me. Now do you think 
not just take me out of the equation. Do you think anybody in prison would have sat there for another 15 years with that information and not used it? I mean, where's the logic of this? Like, he claims, he claims he sent it to the public defender's office. I've been represented by Ropes and Gray for 25 years. He knows that. He claims he sent it to the Innocence Project. We talked to them. They'd never heard of him. So where did you send it? How is it you can go in there and literally as an officer of the court, and I'll say it now, you lied you know, to the court. You're an officer of the court. You lied. It's not the first time you lied. You lied. And that cover-up cost me an extra 14 years of my life. And when people ask why I'm not bitter, I will tell you that part right there I'm bitter about because I lost my mom like five years before I came home. We talked about this earlier today. Like, don't run from the truth. Let the truth just be itself. Like, you have an obligation. You're elected official. You have an oath that you're sworn to. Just let the truth come out. Let your ego get on the side. Stop with the win-loss record and all that crap. Just let the truth come out. We did DNA tested that back then. If it came back, it's mine. You win your case. It's over with. But either way, the truth comes out. And, and that, that I, can't, I can't get that time back with my mother. I can't you know, recover what I lost with the extra 14 years that that cover-up cost me. And to sit there and blatantly tell the judge, like, oh, I did all my due diligence, that's bullshit. You didn't. You're a liar. And your name's Joe Castley, and you're a liar. And that's how it is. And I can say that now because I'm free and clear of that system. Yeah, it's, uh, it's impossible to understand what motivates people to behave in that way. I'll, I'll hear another 100 or 200 of these stories, and I still won't understand it. I don't think any of us ever can. But it happens, and it happens yeah. uh, not infrequently, and people need to know that. Just don't stand in the way of an opportunity for truth to come out. Look, we, we get too caught up in our own personalities and egos, and it's, it should be a system of laws rather than of men. And that comes out of the J.C. Creed. That's one of the stanzas. The government should be, you know, laws rather than men. When we put our own personalities and egos into that, that's where the system gets derailed. Like I said, we had a chance to fix this in 1999. We should have fixed it. It shouldn't have took till 2013, actually till 2018 to fix it. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I still had to fight, even with this coming out. And so what ends up happening is they scramble. And instead of letting it go to my lab, the FBI themselves decided to test it. They tell us ahead of time it's going to totally consume the sample. So, of course, my conspiracy theories, I'm like, they're just going to say it's mine. I'm not even going to be able to send it to our lab to confirm or deny. Right, because the hair is fragile. It's, it's old. It's gone. It's a, it's a piece of hair. And, that, and that's something that's been, as you've been talking, I've been sitting here thinking with that. Like, what an amazing phenomenon that your life is hanging in the balance of two hairs. Yeah. And those hairs have to be brought from one place to another. Oh, yeah. If there's a car accident, if somebody loses it, if somebody goes off the... I mean, a lot of things can go wrong. When that thing's being transported, your life's being transported with it. Oh, and they're fucking hairs. I mean, you know, you're being told that this is going to, it's going to degrade them to the point that they're useless yep. when we test it. So this really... You talk about Hail Mary. This is it. That's it. But it ain't a football game. No, and I, you know, luckily they did it as a peer review, so it's like a, a surgeon operating with other surgeons watching. Because this is Michael Malone, and it's so scandalous. This guy is, you know, this guy is infamous for just screwing people's lives. It's just terrible what he's gotten away with. But in this case, they tested it, and it wasn't my DNA. So you would think, slam dunk, we're done, we're out of here. Nope, I had to go back and then prove that that would have made a difference. They fought us on that. We, luckily, the judge, I was fortunate that he didn't have an ego, and he, he looked at it for what it was. So I won a writ of actual innocence, which meant that they took away my convictions and my sentence, but it also meant that he set it for new trial. Now, here's the same prosecutor who'd been in office for 40 years. His career started around the same time as my case. He's kind of his parallel course throughout the whole time, who won't let go. So... Right, your case probably helped propel him to a long career that, that he enjoyed. I, you know, I don't partially know at your expense, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think that he has a history of abusing his power and, and the system, and so it ended up that they set a bail and it was half a million dollars cash bails. So again, here I am sitting there after thirty-two years. How's that going to work? But it worked. With the help of a couple of friends, I was able to post that bail and. I came home, and the whole time I've been home for four years, just as of December the 7th, it's over. You know, as of January the 1st, I'm not on any kind of parole, probation, supervision, but for the four years that I've been home, I've had one foot on a banana peel. So, 
you know, I've been really blessed in the fact that, you know, I've been able to launch a career and, and find some success and some degree of a voice out here. All the while, with that still hanging over my head, I've got an active prosecution or persecution going on trying to put me back in prison for the rest of my life. So, And this prosecutor is so driven. He actually delayed his own retirement just to get a chance to prosecute you again. Well, he'd offered me a deal right before that. Plead guilty, and it would all go away. Time served. And he announced his retirement. And then I can't say that it's definitely coincidental, but I will say this. When I said no to the deal, within two days, he took his retirement back. Hmm. So... Let's talk a little bit about what's been happening since you got out, because these four years, I mean, do you sleep? Um, because, <laughs> I mean, you're on so many boards and different organizations. Well, I'm, you know what? I got it right in front of me. I'm going to read it. So John's a committee member of the Greater Baltimore Committee's Coalition for a Second Chance. He's also on the board of the Mayor's Green Network Leadership Team the Governor's Office of Crime Control and Prevention Collateral Consequences Work Group, Baltimore City Police Department Community Collaborative Division Reentry Advisory Committee, the DHCD's Keep Maryland Beautiful Steering Committee, and Pivot, a pathway for women from prison to purpose. I mean, I'm tired from reading that, okay? <laughs> what, what in the hell is going on? What are you trying to prove? <laughs> well, it's, again, it's about the dash. I mean, so when, when I came home... Obviously, I'm on bail, and I don't know what the future holds. I'm, I'm very cynical about the criminal justice system. I don't trust it, and I, I fully expect they're going to come and hit me with the butterfly net and snatch me back. Like, oops, we made a mistake or something. you know. So it was very surreal getting out of here. And then I got very—I keep saying lucky. Lucky's not the right word. I was blessed that I made a few good steps and involved myself with some good people and— I have to say, I got lucky because I came through the very program that I now administer, which is Project Serve, our rapid attachment to work model. It's a reentry component. But I was only there for like three months because, like you say, I, I present myself a little different. And people tend to look at me and think, oh, he's okay. And not think, well, you know, he's been gone for 32 years. He might need some service himself. So I came into Living Classrooms Foundation as the organization, and they, they gave me business cards and a title. And I was the client advocate event coordinator. And so I didn't do our normal go out in the alleys and clean and do the, the normal Project Serve work. I literally was working with the, the members that were in Project Serve and creating their calendar of activities and things like that. But there wasn't a funding stream for it, so I needed to move on. So after three months, I interviewed for another nonprofit, Second Chance in Baltimore, and went to work for them. And when I left them, you know, I was a salaried employee and, and, and doing well. And they were, they were a great organization were very supportive. But Living Classrooms has sort of called me back. The director of workforce development position was open. I honestly didn't think that it was, you know, something I could apply for because, you know, I was a man with no future. You know, I, I don't bring that future to the table. I'm literally still under trial, under indictment, and on bail. And they know that. And they looked past that and felt that I was suited for the job and the right one for the job and, and gave me that opportunity knowing full well that my world could have ended at any time. You know, I could have been sent back to prison. And they, they entrusted a department, millions of dollars of, of budget and staff and everything else. So it became even more important to me to honor that, you know, to show that their faith in me was, was correct and that, you know, I was going to redeem that. And and make a difference in that role. So, I don't know. It just comes down to the dash. You know, it really does. Like, however much time you have, and you know, Lord knows any of us could walk out of here and get hit by a bus, but it's about trying to make make a difference. And, and that's just the path that I've always been on. Like, I, it's important to me, you know, especially to redeem, like, I had a law firm, Ropes and Gray, I should mention this, who believed in me and gave me 25 years of pro bono legal services. Now, that's think about the cost value of that. And they did it because they believed in me and they believed in my case. So now how do I repay that? They're not sitting there waiting to garnish my check. You know, they're telling me, go live my life and be successful. So again, the only way to repay that debt is to be successful and to redeem their faith in me and, and why they did what they did. And, and, and then 
I guess the mantle becomes even more big because the more I get out there and, and become involved in these various committees or have an opportunity to speak, then you become representative of what reentry can look like. So now I can't mess up. Like, I, you know, I'm visible. I'm publicly visible, as others are. I'm not the poster child here. But I think that brings more responsibility that if I were to mess up, then that gives all the naysayers even more ammunition. This is why we don't do this. This is why we don't give jobs or work with reentry. So you keep moving it forward. You have no choice but to the more, the more you add, the more it becomes important that you utilize your voice everywhere you can to make a difference. I go back into prisons now to introduce the guys inside with, here's an opportunity when you come home, you can come get trained in solar installations and we have jobs for you. Just being able to sort of coalesce those folk and to get that moving in the right direction and to start you know, having more in-depth conversations about why and how we can make a difference with the whole reentry model is important to me. No, and it's great you're here because it's so important for people to hear that message and to to take a different view of people like yourselves, innocent or otherwise, who were formerly incarcerated, and to reach out and, gi- and give them a chance. I mean, I think that my experience is that that community of formerly incarcerated people will work their ass off because they value every day and every minute. They take nothing for granted. Before we close, if you could just talk for a second about the organization you're working with that you're trying to raise money for and how yeah. incredible their success rate is at keeping people from recidivating. Living Classrooms, amazing, amazing organization that I work for right now. It's a nonprofit in Baltimore. We work primarily in East Baltimore through our target investment zone, where we've taken a two and a half mile square area of East Baltimore, and we are transforming, trying to disrupt the cycle of poverty and uplift multi-generational approach through health and wellness, education, and workforce development. I can't express enough gratitude. You know, these folks gave me an opportunity and a chance and have supported me throughout this entire journey. For people who want to help, they can give money to Living Classrooms? Absolutely. And yep. Is that livingclassrooms.org? It's livingclassroomsfoundation.org. You know, we're a nonprofit. You know, we do a lot of work. It's not just reentry. We do, you know, after-school programming. We do early childhood development. Look at our website, and it'll show you how you can make a donation. We appreciate that support. So once again, it's www.livingclassroomsfoundation.org. I'm going to give money. I hope you'll join me and do so, too. And now is time for always the highlights of the of the show, which is where I stop talking and just turn it over to you for any closing thoughts that you want to share. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me and inviting me to come out here and be a part of the show. I'd, I'd use my time just to say kudos to you too, Jason. I mean, I think that it's so crucial, so key and important what you're doing and bringing the attention that you bring not just the exonerees, but to the whole criminal justice system, the Families Against Mandatory Minimums that I know you're a big proponent of. So if I can just flip the script and just say to everybody listening, like this guy, like he introduced me as doing all this. Trust me, I'm not even in his league for what he does. I don't know when he can possibly sleep. So Jason's going to expose you through this podcast and everything that he's doing. If you just follow him on Instagram, that's what I'm going to tell you right now. Follow him and see the different things he's doing and understand that you too can have an impact. You know, this is one guy, regardless of him being a, a record mogul or whatever title we want to give him, it's one guy making a difference. And honestly, we all can make a difference. It's, it takes a lot of one guys and one women out there to make these things happen. And I think. The lesson that we can all take away from this is that we're all empowered to do that. We just got to take action. Well, John, all I can say is thank you for that. I'm humbled and honored that you're here. And thank you again for coming in and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with our audience. You've been listening to a very moving episode for me personally of Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. And thanks to the Innocence Project as well. I wouldn't have been able to do this without them, so thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall, 
and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.